if you're using value-based pricing, which I suggest that most people do unless they're just starting out, you have to have something to compare that to. So you said $45,000. I don't know if that's a lot of money or not. Well, it isn't, it isn't, right? Because it has absolutely no context. $45,000 for a three-bedroomed apartment in London is crazy cheap. $45,000 for an Apple is really expensive. So until we have anything to compare it to, price is always relative. And that's why it's so important to get some kind of anchor from somebody, not just for from a sales perspective, like so that I can get this person as a client and charge what I want, but to actually understand what value you're delivering. And that's like maybe a whole conversation we could jump into. But I think that one of the biggest realizations for me when I was building my agency was I could provide the exact same service to do two different people. One would be worth a hundred thousand and one would be worth a thousand. The exact same service. Welcome to the Profitable Graphic Designer Podcast, brought to you by Aventive Academy. I'm your host, Katie Sandel. I'm a brand strategist, designer, creative director, and the CEO of a successful six-figure design agency based in Austin, Texas, serving clients worldwide. After mastering the art of building a profitable and sustainable design business, I decided to help you achieve the same success. I teach brand graphic and web design business owners how to attract more clients, increase their pricing and develop design businesses that provide the financial freedom and time flexibility you've always dreamt of. We offer online programs, courses and templates that you can use along with our coaching accelerator and mastermind high touch experiences for creatives. You can learn more about starting and growing your design business at AventiveAcademy.com. But for now, grab a cup of coffee and join me in today's podcast episode. Welcome to another episode of the Profitable Graphic Designer Podcast. Today, we are going to talk about how to sell your design services, how to land better paying clients, and overall, how to structure a sales conversation so you are treated like a partner and not a worker who knows how to use Adobe programs. In today's episode, we have a guest named Matthew Assam, and I will now actually ask Matt to introduce himself and tell us a little bit about who he is and what he does. Hey, thanks for having me on the podcast, Katie. So yeah, I mean, the long and short of what I do is we run a business accelerator program for award-winning creative studios. And our mission essentially is to help them master the business of creativity so that they can have all of the great things that you just said and a lot of the things that you talk about around those high value clients, having a business that actually you enjoy running, that gives you the freedom, the fulfillment and the the financial security that you actually want. Yeah, amazing. Well, thank you so much for being here and for the introduction. Let's start with a sentence that I read in your book. You said, I want you to stop thinking about selling and start thinking about listening. So many designers don't like to sell because they feel salesy and nobody wants to feel that way, right? So can you explain the concept behind the words stop selling 
and start listening to designers who are just trying to sell their design services and get clients. Yeah, well, I remember that feeling. And the only thing I can liken it to is the film Oliver Twist, where you kind of go up with this bowl, like, please, sir, can I have some more food? Because I think so many designers just love designing. And it almost feels like a bit of a charity case. And I remember in my head when I ran my design and marketing agency, I used to think to myself, I love doing this. I just need to go and find someone to pay me. And that was the kind of narrative in my head. And so that always felt like a bit of an awkward conversation to me because although I knew that person, say, needed a new website or needed some graphics for their social, it was really just about convincing them that they should pay what I wanted to be paid and convincing them that I was the right person for the job. And every sales conversation I had felt like a, an interview. It was like, okay, so tell me how you do this and just constantly trying to justify things. And it was just like a really horrible feeling. I was lucky enough to be mentored by some entrepreneurs who basically were brought up around sales. And after being mentored by them, I realized quite quickly that I had no idea how to have a sales conversation. I realized that I had been having these transactional conversations. So I have this service, you need this service, what would you like to pay for it? And basically kind of having that exchange. When I worked with entrepreneurs and people who had sales backgrounds, I realized that the reason it felt so uncomfortable for me is because I was so focused on myself. I was so focused on trying to sell my services that I wasn't actually listening to what that person needed other than they told me that they needed a website. So the concept of listening versus selling is really about starting with your prospect and not assuming that when you get on that call, they're actually going to become a client and not even really having that intention in the back of your mind to get them as a client. So the intention really is to listen. And I always say to, to our clients now when we're coaching agencies, the intention of that sales call really for both of you should be clarity. Clarity on whether A, you have a problem that we can help with and B, whether we are the right people to help you with that problem. Yeah, I love that. And I'm going to just add that in 2015, when I was starting my freelance business, I heard a sentence where so someone said something like, whatever you're trying to sell, don't talk about that. And I was like, what does he mean? Like, if I want to sell a logo or a website, like, of course, I'm going to talk about that. And I remember at that time, how my sales calls looked like it was just me talking about how many revisions are included, how many logo designs, what we do for the website versus now, just yesterday, I had a sales call. I don't even call them sales calls anymore, but it's a sales call, you know, at the end of the day. And we didn't even talk about the deliverables that much. We, of course, mentioned them, but it was more like a high level business conversation, trying to figure out what problems, like real problems they have, because their re real problem is not not having a nice looking website. It's a website that doesn't bring in more customers or leads or doesn't create enough sales. So that's just something that I wanted to add, because it totally feels like exactly what you just said. You have to listen to the problems and don't be so focused on selling your services, right? Yeah. And it's a different skill set. I think that's the thing that most people underestimate when they start a business. 
I know for me personally, I started in the world of marketing and advertising and I worked for big, big agencies. Then I worked for slightly smaller agencies. And by the time I got to start my own business, I thought this is going to be easy. Like I know how to do this. I know how these businesses run, but I totally underestimated developing the other skills that you need to run a business like sales and marketing and leadership and management. And they are literally skills the same way learning how to design or learning about brand strategy is a skill. And I think that's what people forget. Yeah, because I feel like as soon as someone becomes a freelancer or make, makes that decision to become a freelancer, they think, oh, well, I'm going to just explain what I do and that's it. <laughs> but then it's very hard to separate yourself from the competition as well. And I know that that is something you also mentioned in your book when it comes to like niching and specializing. Can you tell us a little bit about that and how a design agency, for example, can stand out from the rest and if niching and specializing is something you would recommend? Yeah, absolutely. So just to give everyone some context, I have invested more than I'd probably like to admit in courses, coaches, mentors. I've read lots and lots of books and I've tested a lot of theories out in the real world. And the conclusion that I've come to is essentially in order to grow and scale a design studio profitably and effectively, you really need three key things or there's three big ideas really that everything revolves around so if all the courses i've taken all the books that i've read everything fundamentally people say these three things number one you've got to find yourself to different you've got to find a way to differentiate yourself from the market if you can't differentiate yourself then you basically get to a certain level where being good at your craft only gets you so far so if you want to go up to the next level where you're pitching for 50 100 250k projects having a good strong portfolio isn't going to cut it, right? You have to have something that's going to differentiate you. The second thing is your ability to communicate the value of what you do. So how is what you do going to solve a big enough problem that you can justify what you're going to charge? And then the third thing is to have a delivery method or a delivery vehicle that is scale scalable, i.e. you're not just trading your time for money. You're not just doing things on day rates. So going back to that first concept, something that I learned from a combination of people, one of whom was Daniel Priestley, the other one was building a story brand by Donald Miller and a few other things is that really the only thing that we can truly say is unique about our business is us and the people in it. And so one of the processes that I've been through myself and that we go through with our clients is this idea of kind of unpacking your value. And looking at how all of the experiences that you've had in your life, all of the books you've read, all of the people that you know, all of the hobbies that you have, they all combine together to put you in a unique position to solve a problem for somebody. And if you can figure out who that person is and what that problem is and join all of those dots together, all of a sudden you are completely differentiated from the rest of the market. And rather than trying to be the best designer, you literally are the only designer who can solve that problem. Yeah. And I feel like a lot of designers, at least it was in my case, I thought that the problem is that my clients don't have a logo or they don't have the right colors or they don't have a website. So what would you say that some real problems our clients have? Like what, what are some 
bigger problems than just the the deliverables basically yeah well i mean i think russell brunson talks about this a little bit but there's if i remember rightly and i might not remember all three but i think there's three broad categories of problems there's like more money there's better relationships and then there's like health i think they're like the three kind of like categories that all problems can be boiled down into so it's not necessarily that the problem itself is unique but it is the fact that you are in a unique position to solve it. So I'll give you a really specific example. I always remember one of my clients that the very first clients that I worked with in the early days, and he was a freelance graphic designer and he was trying to build a studio and the problems that he was facing specifically were he was constantly being compared on price. He was not able to raise his prices because of that. And ultimately he wasn't attracting the kind of clients that he wanted. So when I met him, I said, his name was Scott. And I was like, Hey Scott, what do you do? He was like, Oh, I'm, I'm a designer. You know, I'm trying to build this design studio. And I said, Oh, cool. Tell me like some of the things you're passionate about. He's like, Oh, I love design and I love this. And I was like, you know, no offense, Scott, but you kind of sound like everybody else I've ever talked to who designs like logos. Right. And so we went through this process where I started to, unpack Scott's story a little bit. So, okay, Scott, what do you do in your spare time apart from designing? He's like, well, you know, I like walking, I like climbing. And I looked at Scott's clothes and I was like, tell me about the clothes that you're wearing. He was like, oh, well, this is this brand. And he's like, one of the first people to tell me about Patagonia and this is their origin. And so when you start hearing people's stories, you start realizing like, oh, I, I understand where you're coming from now and understand where your angle is so over a few months of us working together scott went from saying hey i'm a graphic designer and i love graphic design to actually i work with outdoor and adventure brands and i help them to bring their ideas to life through visually engaging content and so the problem he was solving was that he was working with a lot of well he saw a lot of outdoor and adventure brands had all these great ideas like where they wanted to take their brand but they really struggled to articulate them in a way that would either get their consumers on board or would get investors on board. And so he just doubled down on that. And he was able to go into a room with outdoor and adventure brands. And in the end, he got clients like Red Bull and some other big clients. And rather than talking about design, he just spent the whole time talking about the outdoors and outdoor brands and how consumers perceive those brands and the conversations he'd had with people on hikes and all of this stuff. And they didn't even really see him as a designer. They saw him as this guy that could come in, understand their product and what they were trying to achieve better than anyone else, and then go and make it in the real world and go and bring that idea to life through lots of various forms. So that's like a really tangible example of someone who was super broad and just kind of was getting compared to everybody else. But then when we really unpacked his story, looked at the things he was passionate about, looked at the clothes that he wore, looked at the people he hung out with, it was really clear that he was in a unique position to help outdoor and adventure brands, not accountants or lawyers or anybody else. Yeah, I love that. And I also remember when I had a business coach and actually he wasn't even like fully my business coach, but I had a call with someone who is a business coach. And when he asked me, what do you do? And I was like, well, I provide logo designs and websites and graphic design services to small business owners. And he was like, where do you find them? I'm like, well, I don't know. They usually find me or I go for a lot of, you know, to a lot of different networking events. And it was just like so broad. 
that he said, you have to find your niche. And I was like, but I'm going to lose clients that way. Like if I specialize in this one thing, I'm going to miss out on all these other opportunities. But in fact, that's completely opposite <laughs> what happened. As soon as I made a decision to specialize and actually hire a marketing agency to help me figure out what my niche is going to be based on my personal interests, my at that time, I already had like employees and contractors and what they would love to work on and who our previous clients are and, you know, things like that. And then we, as soon as we decided on this one niche, our business grew so much. I can't even, now we are almost like we are getting the ideal clients, something we are so passionate about. And we are also now really known in this one industry and we are experts and we are able to charge more and get more clients. And, you know, that's the whole point of having that specialization. Yeah. And it changes everything, right? It changes, like you said, how much money you can charge. Um, but I think for me, the biggest thing that I've noticed personally is a sense of fulfillment and a sense of significance that I know when I'm talking to creatives, I understand their problems better than most other business coaches because of my background and because of where I've come from. And when I help other people see that, and for example, we had a client recently ran a videography studio and we helped him to kind of niche into the tech space. And once you see that they kind of connect things they're passionate about to their business, they just get almost like obsessed with it. And now he's like, I know I can be the leader in this space. Like, I know I can be the number one agency for these people because, because he just realizes that he's got all of this knowledge outside of how to make a good video. And I think that's the, like, if I could just have one message for the people listening is that your skill set, your hard skill set of design is such a small part of your overall value that you have. And most people just don't realize that they just think that their value is related to their ability to design a logo. Definitely. And also when people are then selling, they are actually creating these meaningful, meaningful connections. It's totally different. And then there is no reason for you to pitch. But can you tell us a little bit like how do you pitch your design services? Like, can you give some advice to brand graphic or web design business owners? How can they pitch their services? If you can give us examples where they can pitch their services, but without selling. Yeah, totally. So you'll probably learn, Katie, that I love a framework. So we have actually got something called the one page sales framework. It's totally free to download. If you like, I can kind of link to it or point your listeners to it. Which And is I can put really, that in the show notes. Yeah, it's like it's kind of a really good reference and we get our clients to pin it up on a wall. And the reason I created it was because there's like a certain structure and a certain way of running a sales conversation that allows you to feel like you're not pitching because if you do it right with the right person, it's almost just like a logical next step where they go, cool. So tell me about how you can help rather than you feeling like you're having to pitch up front. But I think before we talk about that, it's an important to make a distinction between sales and marketing, because I think a lot of people listening will get most of their work from referrals and word of mouth. And so it's like, Hey, Katie, like you're amazing at this thing. You should meet Joe. They need a logo. Right. And so the problem with that is it already kind of sets you up on the back foot. So I love referrals. I think they're one of the best ways to get new business, but most people don't have a strategy around getting referrals. It's just an organic thing where they're getting introduced to people and they have no real control of that conversation. 
So first of all, I think it's important to differentiate between marketing and sales. And so to me, marketing is about getting someone's interest and sales is about having a conversation specifically around solving that problem and presenting an offer. So marketing is about getting people to raise a hand and say, I'm interested in this thing. Sales is about actually presenting an offer to buy that thing. So when you asked about pitching, in your mind, were you thinking more about like actively going and getting work? Or were you thinking more about like when someone comes to you as a referral, for example? When someone comes to you as a referral, for example, and it doesn't have to be through a referral, but maybe just a contact form on your website. So yeah. how do you explain what is that that you offer without pitching and talking too much about your offers? Okay. I promise you, I will ask the question, but there's one more bit of context that I just need to give. So there is a process that as humans, we all go through when we're making what's called a considered purchase. So anything where you're not just like going into a shop and going, oh, that's a nice jumper, I'm going to buy it. It's something that's usually like fairly high ticket and you're considering that purchase over a period of time. And so there's about, there's six stages in total. But the first two stages are where someone's either not aware they've got a problem and stage two is they become aware. And so everything from that all the way up to stage four is really where stage four, they're going out into the market and they're deciding who they're going to work with. And so most people are dealing with stage four buyers. And the problem with stage four buyers is that the criteria they're using to decide what they're going to buy is usually three things. It's usually how much does it cost? Is it good? And how quickly can I get it? And so we're sucked into this trap of good, fast, cheap. Oh my God, totally. <laughs> yeah, right. I feel that from when I was starting the freelance business and it was literally that or getting emails. How much for a logo? When can I get it? <laughs> exactly, right? Before we continue with this podcast episode, I just want to quickly remind you that if you're a design business owner whose dream is to have a successful and profitable career so you can enjoy the freedom and flexibility that comes with it, then I have something for you. The Profitable Designer Program is my signature 12-week system that will help you improve your business, sign amazing high-paying clients, and truly achieve your financial and lifestyle goals. Visit aventiveacademy.com slash profit to check if you can join us now or if we are currently not accepting more designers into the program. In that case, you will be able to join the waitlist and be the first to know when we open the doors again. Now, we'll go back to the episode in a second, but I just want to add that designers who completed the program were able to sign five-figure design clients, 10 times their pricing, reach six figures and beyond, make $20,000 per month while working only a few hours a week and more. So if you want to be my next success story and achieve achieve results like these, visit aventiveacademy.com slash profit. Now let's go back to the episode. So what most people do is A, they're not aware of that process. They just think that's how prospects come to them. But most people will essentially follow a prospects buying process. So there's a, a phrase that I learned early on in sales, which has always stuck with me. And it's, if you don't have a sales process, you're at the mercy of your prospects buying process, which basically means 
you are at the mercy of how they buy products, how they make decisions. And that just leads to this kind of worker relationship. So the reason I'm giving you that context is because how you frame a conversation is really about taking them back a few steps and actually slowing them down. So rather than automatically getting into this conversation about logos and your services and what you offer, one of the first questions I will ask somebody when I attract them at stage four is why do you want this? Like, why do you want a logo? And they'll tell me, oh, because I'm not particularly happy with how our logo looks. Okay, so why is that important to your business? And why, and why, and why? And I really want to get them to justify and but also to zoom out so that I can figure out what are they actually trying to achieve with this thing, right? So I'm actually trying to do a bit of a what I would call like an anti-sell, which is almost getting them to consider, do they even need a logo? And that sounds very counterintuitive, but we've had clients use this process and go from, hey, we've got, I don't know, 3,000 pounds for a logo to actually committing to 20 or 30,000 pounds or dollars to go through a branding process. Because through that conversation, they've actually realized that by just spending three grand on a logo, they're not going to get the outcome they want. So the first step on one of those sales calls is to really figure out what does the prospect actually want? What do they believe they're going to get by having whatever it is that they're asking for? Yeah. And I also feel that it's hard to measure the success of that logo or a rebrand. So do you have any tips of how can, even when they say, what, what is that that they're trying to do? Like, let's say make more product sales or get more customers to the door, to their yoga studio, for example. How are they going to measure the success of that you know, brand or rebrand? Because it's, it's a little bit different than when you're selling a website. So you're talking about conversion rates and things like that. But if you're talking about logo and branding only, how can they know if that's going to be successful? And also, how can designers justify the price that they're asking for? Yeah, two really good questions. I think the, the answer to the first one is quite simple. It's like they can't know, right? There's no way that you can know and control that outcome. And I think people have read too many books and a certain person that I really admire is Alex Hormozy, but I think a lot of people have misconstrued his $100 million offer books and they're going out there being like, I need to guarantee that this brand gives like a 10x return on investment. Like you just can't do that because you can't control the, the variables. So I think the, the first thing to acknowledge is like, you can't control the outcome. The second thing is that it doesn't always have to be anchored to a return. It makes sales way easier, but there's two things that people consider when they're buying. They consider the emotional and the logical. So again, another phrase that I always remember from when I was trained in sales is like people buy based on emotion and they justify with logic. So it's not logical to go and buy a $20,000 Rolex when you can get the exact same watch for $2,000, but they are buying that as an emotional purchase and they will find a way to justify it logically. So if I was 
selling branding again or selling design or selling something which is slightly intangible, I would do two things. Number one, I would spend 80% of my time digging into the emotion. And so we talk about this concept of like pain and pleasure. So what happens if you don't do this and what is possible if you do and really making sure that like that prospect feels that and buys into that vision and has that kind of pain pleasure. So that's the first thing I would do. The second thing I would do is I would try to create some kind of anchor. I would still trying to have like 20% of logic. And I believe that absolutely everything can be quantifiable. So maybe this is a little, we don't have to do this, but just an idea that's cropped into my mind. Think of something that either you hear as like a common service that people find really difficult to quantify. What's mm-hmm. what's like a service or like a, an offering that you typically, or, or in your mind, you think, oh no, it'd be really difficult to quantify that. So I I mean, a lot of service, uh, do you mean like in the design industry or? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it doesn't have to be design, but obviously that helps for people listening. Yeah, so what would be really hard to quantify is, well, I feel like most of design services, <laughs> it, it really is like, especially like when you're talking about brand, like I offer branding services, like what, what does that even mean? Because many clients don't even know what that means. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. I think that right? that's, yeah. So the first thing we've got to do is we've got to establish like, what is it that they're trying to achieve? So can you think of, have you ever sold branding? Uh, yes. Yeah. That's what okay. my branding and design agency does most okay, of the cool. time. So can you think of a project where you've sold branding at what would be considered as like quite a lot of money? Yeah. So let's talk about the this one specific brand that I'm now talking, thinking about because um, it was very recent. And so they have like cold plunges and saunas and things like that. And the branding project was $45,000. I don't know if that's a lot or not, but that's our sweet spot. That's what our focus is on. But it was $45,000 and they came in thinking they're going to spend $15,000. Yeah. We talked about, I'm usually on the sales calls. That's that's something that I simply like enjoy. I love to get to know them and, and you know, offer our services in a, what I would say, meaningful way where I'm actually serving instead of selling. But but yeah, so they they came in thinking they're gonna sell, they're gonna create this brand or kind of like a brand refresh because they've been in the business for about five years. They're looking to rebrand, and they're gonna just spend five thousand because they want something new. But then when we you know went deeper into why they want something new, I realized that they want to expand and they want to open more locations, and it's completely different problem than just providing new colors and a logo so that's that we can use that example yeah exactly right so we can do two things either you can talk through how you did that or we can kind of discuss it but one thing that i'll know that you did is that you would have asked questions about the product and the market and the goals right and i'm assuming that in there somewhere was some kind of quantifiable metric so either how much the product cost or their revenue goals or something like that. Am I right? Yes, definitely. Okay, perfect. So that's the first thing that you can latch onto as like a quantifiable metric. And I think a lot of designers and creatives in general 
really struggle with the idea of asking those kind of questions because they're like, who am I to ask questions about revenue and product price and all of that when I'm just here to design a logo? And I think that's part of the problem is because like, A, and I'm not, I'm not even just saying like brand strategy, like let's put brand strategy aside for a second and let's just really focus on like branding. Visuals. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the visuals. Um, if you think of yourself just as a logo designer, then I, that's the first shift you need to make in your head is like the logo is the output. So the metaphor I always use is like the, the, sh- the guy in the shipyard that comes in and bangs the, the engine with a hammer and fixes the whole ship it's like the hammer wasn't the thing that was valuable it was knowing where to bang on the engine that solved the problem right so it's not just the fact that you can draw a logo you need to take like multiple ideas you need to understand what the brand is trying to achieve you need to understand all of these things and so in order to understand that really and in order to actually understand if you can deliver value you need to know some really fundamental metrics because if you're if you're using value-based pricing which i suggest that most people do unless they're just starting out you have to have something to compare that to so you said forty-five thousand dollars. i don't know if that's a lot of money or not well it isn't it isn't right because it has absolutely no context forty-five thousand dollars for a three-bedroomed apartment in london is crazy cheap for an Apple is really expensive. So until we have anything to compare it to, price is always relative. And that's why it's so important to get some kind of anchor from somebody, not just from a sales perspective, like so that I can get this person as a client and charge what I want, but to actually understand what value you're delivering. And that's like maybe a whole conversation we could jump into. But I think that one of the biggest realizations for me when I was building my agency was I could provide the exact same service to do two different people. One would be worth a hundred thousand and one would be worth a thousand. The exact same service. Yeah, to exactly. Two different people, totally different value. Totally. And I think I gave this example in one of my online courses, but basically there was a food truck right in front of our office and he was asking for a new logo design and to be honest he doesn't even need a logo because all his customers are just people coming from the same neighborhood so he doesn't literally he doesn't even need a logo maybe just use any font and put your name on on that food truck but if someone is starting completely the same business and they're investing a lot of money in that business and they want to open maybe eight or 18 different locations at the same time, you're solving a completely different problem, a way bigger problem. And yes, they do need the logo. <laughs> yeah. And that's <laughs> so to it's me the what... same service, but, and maybe it's going to take me the same amount of time to design a logo for brand strategy is something different. But if we're talking about visuals now, it's going to take me the same amount of time to design a logo for this one food truck or these 18 food trucks, but it's totally different project. Yeah, exactly. And to me, that's where sales starts. And that's a massive shift that I had to have. And that's when I talk about the idea of like, I think you said it, sales versus service is really being okay with the person you're talking to not actually needing what you sell. 
Like that is the objective of the conversation to me. So if I was having a conversation with that food truck vendor, I'd be like, okay, cool. Why do you need a logo? Oh, well, I'm not happy with how my visual, okay, well, what are you trying to achieve? I want more customers. Okay. Do you really think that like by changing this branding on your thing, it's going to get you more customers? Or do you think by focusing on your product and your food and how quickly you deliver it, like is more likely to get you more customers, you know, like what are we actually trying to achieve here? And there's a sense of ethics there to me. Like I got to a point where I was building websites with people and we were getting up into the, you know, kind of five figure mark. And I was like, that's a lot of money for a lot of these businesses. And some of them were small businesses. And I was like, well, this is what we need to charge as an agency to like keep running. And it's what I want to get paid. So I need to start taking a little bit more responsibility here in these conversations about whether this is a good investment for them. And obviously at the time I wasn't a business coach, I was running an agency. So like there was only a limited amount I knew about business, but it was about asking those questions. Like, do you really think this is the thing that's going to get you the outcome right now? Like, because this is the work that's going to be involved to get you there. And this is the time and the money and the energy. Like, do you want to spend this on a website right now? Or is there something else in your business that maybe you need to invest in? Yes, and I feel like we understand that concept now, but for someone who maybe doesn't have enough clients or really wants to get that client, it's very hard to now all of a sudden you're asking questions like, oh, do you really need that when you really want to get that client? Yeah, 100%. There's there's something that I'm a big believer in, which is if you truly serve someone in a sales conversation, the reputation and goodwill that you create will outlast any sales that you make. And if you are struggling to get clients, the way to overcome that fear that might take over where you just say yes, even though you know it's not a good fit or maybe they don't need what you have is volume. And that's where people miss out. They think this is the only opportunity, so I must get this project. And that is one of the most toxic mindsets or approaches to sales because it actually, A, decreases your chance of getting that thing, but B, it makes you say yes to the wrong people and attracts the wrong kind of clients. And so if all I would say is if anyone's listening in that situation you just described, the number one solution is volume. Go and have more conversations with more people, not try and get more people to say yes. Yes, and I think that on the sales calls, the people can people can they can feel that you that you need them mm-hmm. you sound desperate you're willing mm-hmm. to lower your rates you're willing to add on more designs to the project and you're just willing to do anything and everything just to get that client and the client can feel that yeah 100% yeah there's a a phrase that sometimes we use internally which is needy is creepy And I'm pretty sure it probably came from like the dating world, but it's always one that's just stuck with me. And I try and remind myself of that on calls. Like people pick up on it. If you're, if you're needy and you need this project, people will feel that. And, and they'll either take advantage of it or they'll just say, they'll make up some weird excuse and you'll never really be able to figure out why they didn't move ahead with that project. Yeah. And that goes back to the emotions. And I know you mentioned it a little bit, but can you tell us a little bit, like how can we tie emotions with the, with the client's needs. Because you mentioned that when selling, it's very, it's easier to sell when it's based on emotions. Mm -hmm. So if you can just tell us a little bit more about what is exactly that you mean by that. 
so everything we do as humans from a very like basic perspective is either to avoid pain or move towards pleasure like at a very fundamental kind of pavlovian psychology level so i always imagine it in my mind like a scale so when someone parts with money time and energy that is a form of pain they are basically making a decision where they're going to invest their time money and energy and there is a risk associated with that so the more money they're spending the more time they have to invest the more energy they have to put into something the more risk there is i.e the more potential pain so you've got that potential pain on that side of the the seesaw and then you've got this side which is saying but if this goes well you get all of this stuff and so the emotional side is they have to believe and there has to feel like there is more benefit to working with you than pain of working with you. So if the risk outweighs the reward, it will always be no, even if it seems really logical. And so the job or a good salesperson will be very good at understanding the emotional needs of that client as well as just the logical needs and the way that we do that and understand that is just through better questions yeah definitely well thank you matt so much for being on today's show i've really liked everything we talked about is there anything else that you would like to add when it comes to sales and pitching without sounding salesy i think there's there's a couple of rules just to keep in mind when you get on sales conversations the first one is the idea of service versus sales. So having the prospect's intention as the number one focus. So actually serving them, doing what's right for them. And then the second thing is like detaching yourself from the outcome. So being okay with this person walking away and really just being there. And if you hear that actually this probably isn't a good fit, having the courage to to say that and having the courage to point them in another direction, even if you feel like you need the money right now. And if you can show up to sales calls like that, as I said before, you will build an extreme amount of goodwill and your brand reputation will outlast any kind of cash that you can get into the bank. Yeah. And it all starts with that mindset. Mm -hmm. Yeah. hundred percent. Okay. Well, thank you so much. Can you tell us how can we connect with you, like your website, social media? Sure. So I mentioned the one-page sales framework, if people want to dig down a little bit more into this. So I will put a link in the description below. But if you Google my name, Matt Essam, and then the one-page sales framework, you should find that. Also, if you head over to my website, at the moment, I'm giving away free copies of my book. So if you head over to mattessam.co.uk and then click on free book at the top, you can grab a free copy of the book that we've been referencing today and dive into some more of the ideas and the strategies that we've been talking about. Yeah. And I really recommend and love the book. Thank you. Appreciate that. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for being here and we'll talk soon. Thanks, Katie. Thanks for tuning in to the Profitable Graphic Designer podcast. But wait, before you go, if you enjoyed this podcast episode and want the chance to access one of our online courses for free, simply leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Each month, one lucky reviewer gets to pick a course as a token of our appreciation. And here's a reminder. 
We are here to help you build the design business of your dreams. Whether it's creating compelling proposals, attracting 10K clients, pricing your design services, improving your portfolio, reaching six figures and beyond, or helping you stand out, we've got you covered. I invite you to join over 1,000 designers in my signature 12-week program, The Profitable Designer. Visit aventiveacademy.com profit. And also, don't forget to hit that subscribe button. That way, you'll be the first to know when each new episode drops so you never miss out on future content. Until next time, be sure to connect with us on Instagram at at Aventive Academy, where we share valuable business tips, stories, and resources for brand, graphic, and web design business owners. Bye for now. Your host, Katie Sandell.